We have a very long set of readings today for reasons which I hope will become apparent. Eleven readings, ten from the Gospels, in which you will hear exactly the same pattern repeated ten times. Now, we stand for the reading of God's word to show respect when he is speaking to us, but let's be sensible with this principle. God knows our weaknesses, so if you are pregnant or you have to hold a child or you're about to pass out or something, please don't feel like you are less holy by sitting down. That is okay. A reading from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and 1 Corinthians. These are God's words. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they beheld the signs which he did on them that were sick. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes, and seeing that a great multitude cometh unto him, saith unto Philip, Whence are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii's worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here who hath five barley loaves and two fishes, but what are these among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to, that, to them that were, sit, that were sat down, I should think it's supposed to say, likewise also of the fishes, as much as they would. Now from Matthew, and when evening was come, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desert, and the time is already past. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said unto them, They have no need to go away. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. And they all ate and were filled, and they took up that which remained over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and they that did eat were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now from Mark. They sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, and he gave to the disciples to set before them, and the two fishes dividing he among them all, and they all ate and were filled. And from Luke, and he said unto his disciples, make them sit down in companies about fifty each, and they did so and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude, and they ate and were all filled. Now again from Mark, in those days when there was again a great multitude and they had nothing to eat, he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their home, they will faint on the way. And some of them are come from far. And his disciples answered him, When shall one be able to fill these men with bread here in a desert place? 
And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. Now from Matthew, Jesus said unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few small fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and he gave thanks and broke and gave to the disciples, and the disciples to the multitudes, and they all ate and were filled. Matthew again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. And Mark, and as they were eating, he took bread, and when he had blessed, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take ye, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Luke, he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do unto my remembrance. And the cup in like manner after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, even that which is poured out for you. And Luke again, they drew nigh to the village, whither they were going, and he made as though he would go further, and they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And he went in to abide with them. And it came to pass, when he had sat down with them to eat, he took the bread and blessed, and breaking it, he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Was not our heart burning within us when he spoke to us in the way, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they rehearsed the things that happened in the way, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread." And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, this do unto my remembrance. In like manner also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as ye drink it unto my remembrance. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are God's words. You may be seated. We have been working through the nature of the church and its worship for 13 weeks now, not including Christmas, which makes this the 14th week, the 14th sermon on this important topic. I have obviously been trying to take a somewhat systematic approach, while at the same time being very selective to our own needs, because if we were to work through every possible element of worship and look at everything that we could reasonably say about it, I do believe we would spend many months and possibly as much as a year or two doing so. So I have 
tried to focus on things that are especially relevant or important to Redwood as a church rather than on the systematic theology of worship in general, but 13 weeks is still a lot of sermons to take in. So the first thing that I want to do today is remind you of five of the most important things that we have learned which come together in an important way in the Lord's Supper. The first thing that we have learned is that the church is a body. Specifically, it is the body of Christ. And this is not a metaphor. Many people commonly think that it is a metaphor, but it is a symbol. A metaphor is a figure of speech. It operates only at the level of language. It can differ from language to language and culture to culture. It's a social construct, you might say. But a symbol operates at the level of reality. A symbol is a physical expression of a spiritual reality or a heavenly pattern. So it operates at the level of creation. A body is a heavenly pattern first. Remember, it's like a nexus of powers. And our physical bodies follow that pattern, which is what makes them bodies in the first place. So the church is no less Christ's actual body than his human human form is. They are both truly his body. They are just different kinds of bodies. One is what we think of as a normal physical body, and one is like a distributed mystical body, a body of bodies, you might say. But they are both bodies. They both follow the heavenly pattern of a nexus of powers, and the same spirit, most importantly, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, animates them both. Christ's human body is a unified nexus for his human powers, his human abilities and faculties. Christ's mystical or spiritual body, the church, is the unified nexus for his mystical or spiritual powers and abilities and faculties. I think we're pretty solid on this idea, so I won't linger, but this does become very important when we examine 1 Corinthians 11. The second thing that we have learned is that worship is the center of life. All of life is service to God. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual service or worship. But the Lord's day is where we learn how to do this. The Lord's day is the peak of the mountain, the pinnacle of life, where the ongoing sacrifices of our daily service are patterned for us. We plant the seed in our Lord's day worship, and that seed grows during the week, and during our lives, it is the temple, the church, which is what feeds and nourishes the world in Ezekiel's vision and in John's vision in Revelation. So worship is both the center and the height, the peak of the mountain. Thirdly, worship itself has a center and a peak. This is a, a fractal pattern, no surprises there. Worship begins on the side of the mountain, as it were, and we pass through purification and then through being reshaped by the sword of the Spirit until we reach the top, which is where we share a meal with God. Worship culminates in communion, in table fellowship. What else could it be? As the pinnacle of life, worship gives form to the very purpose of life itself, which is to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. And the symbol of this throughout Scripture, of this enjoying God, is enjoying his hospitality. It is communion and fellowship through food. Adam and Eve are created in an orchard, 
And the emphasis is on what they may eat in the sanctuary. Moses and the elders of Israel behold God and eat with him at Mount Sinai. The Sabbaths of Israel are described as feasts. The Levitical sacrifices culminated in the peace offering, the fellowship offering, where the altar fire ate or consumed the the best parts of the animal, and the believer ate the rest with the priests before God. And of course, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of this, the substance of that shadow, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not a communion, a sharing, a mutual participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ, seeing that we who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread? Behold, Israel after the flesh, have not they that eat the sacrifices, that is the peace offerings, have not they communion with the altar? So this is referring back to the sacrifices of Israel and saying the Lord's Supper is fulfilled in this, this pattern of eating with God, this is what we are doing. And of course, the end of history looks, we look forward to this in the eschaton, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper anticipates this and prefigures this, the great feast and banquet where Christ and the church are united and share perfect fellowship in eternity. Fourthly, we have learned, we learned last week, in fact, that communion is a covenant remembrance or a covenant reaffirmation. In other words, in communion, we participate in the new covenant and indeed in Christ himself. And we do this because communion calls to God's remembrance, his covenant in Christ's blood, and appeals efficaciously. It is an effective appeal to the promise that he has made in the gospel that he will build a people for himself, a people constituting his own body. Every promise of the gospel is rolled up into the Lord's Supper and completed there. Communion truly is communion with God, a mystical participation in him and him in us. It also truly prompts God to respond, to act as he has promised to act. Through his body, he has promised that he will break down the gates of Hades and defeat every enemy until all that remains is death. And when we celebrate the Eucharist, he remembers this promise and acts to fulfill it. In this sense, communion is warfare against the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Which is why I made sure that we read that strange detail that both Mark and Luke record. Did you notice this? Mark 6.40, they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And Luke 9.14, he said unto his disciples, make them sit down in companies about 50 each. This is military language. I just wanted to note this in passing to plant the seed in your minds because we will return to worship as warfare another time. In our call to worship, I say that we are summoned by God. It would be just as accurate to say that we are mustered by God. We gather as an army. Finally, we have learned that liturgy is the way in which we participate in heavenly patterns. In other words, the form and the timing of our actions is how we participate in heavenly patterns. We have seen that there is some kind of what I've called a resonance, for want of a better word, that exists between the heavenly realm and the material world. 
and by ordering the form and the timing of our actions here on earth to reflect and to echo the heavenly patterns, we actually enter into those patterns and participate in them. And this is very mysterious and yet very important. The exact reason that God is so concerned about the patterns of our worship is that the earth is supposed to represent and express heavenly realities. Jesus tells us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the church in Revelation is depicted as literally coming down out of heaven to establish heavenly patterns on earth so that Christ can be all in all. The way that we achieve this is liturgical. It is by patterning that which we do after heavenly patterns, that these heavenly patterns are manifested here on earth. And this is what I call true magic to the great alarm of some of our truly reformed brothers, but liturgy is true magic and the gospel is true myth, as C.S. Lewis liked to put it. Now, the obvious application for today is that the Eucharist itself is liturgical. It has a form and a timing that is explicitly and repeatedly laid out for us in Scripture, almost like it's really important that we should take notice. And when we enter into this pattern, when we represent taking Christ into ourselves, partaking of the same substance together so that our bodies are built up into the same stuff, we actually do enter into the heavenly pattern of partaking in the divine nature, as Peter puts it. We truly are made one together. Not only that, but because communion is the center of worship, which is the center of life, this pattern flows down into all of our service of God throughout the week. So, knowing that getting it right matters, today I want to look at the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. How are we to perform it? What is the pattern? What is the timing? What is the form? Let's start with timing because we've been here before, so it's familiar territory. Here is the order of the Lord's Supper, which is very apparent, very consistent in every single instance that Jesus feeds someone. Firstly, he takes the bread. Secondly, he blesses. Thirdly, he breaks. Fourthly, he gives. And fifthly, he judges or evaluates or assesses, and this is often implicit in that the people eating are going to be judging themselves. Yes, this is yummy, or no, this is not yummy. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself gives the judgment. He tells his disciples what to think of it. This is my body. This is what this means, in other words. And sixthly, we eat and integrate it into ourselves, which of course means enjoying it, resting in him. And the same pattern occurs with the wine. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it. That is, he pours it out for each person. He, he divides it between them. He gives it, he judges, he says, this is my blood. And he, the, the disciples integrate, drink it. I should draw your attention to the fact, while we're looking at that, that the sequence is repeated. It is not one sequence with the, both the bread and the wine together. It is one sequence for each with the same pattern each time. And this is important. Many churches, they, they try to munge the elements together. So you've got the bread and the wine distributed at the same time. But practice influences theology just as theology influences practice. And churches that do this kind of thing often end up in weird errors 
Um, and I won't go into the, the details of the, the kinds of theologies or theological errors that can arise from this, but one thing that I'll draw your attention to is there is a common practice in some churches of dipping the bread into the wine. But did you notice in John's gospel what dipping the bread into the wine represents? Who does Jesus give that bread to? He gives it to Judas. So let's not do that. So this is the basic pattern. Taking hold, thanking or blessing, breaking, giving, judging, integrating. And do you remember that I pointed out a few weeks ago, this pattern is actually the same pattern that we should be presenting in our daily service to God. Our worship in the work that we do is it follows the same pattern as the worship that we perform in the Lord's Supper itself. So it is not just an order of sacrament. This is an order of life. We take hold of a piece of our world. We thank God for it. We break it up and put it back together differently. That is, we work with it. We give it, usually sharing it with others, but sometimes just giving it to ourselves. We judge or evaluate what do we think of it. Was this good work? Was this bad work? And finally, we integrate it. We make it ours or we enjoy it. Or if we judge that it is not good work, we disintegrate it, we destroy it, and start again. This is not just an order of sacrament and an order of life, however. It is also an order of preaching. We take hold of the word in the reading. We thank God for it at Redwood. We bless by saying a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and by them we live. Then we break up the word. The, the preaching is literally rightly dividing the word of truth. Then Giving and judging are kind of commingled, and that's quite a common thing that we'll see. It's often the case that giving and judging have to be commingled. The preacher gives the word through his preaching, which means he also judges the word, not standing over the word, but rather giving his judgment of its meaning, and especially of how to apply it to our lives. And then you guys, in turn, you also receive and also judge. You judge his judgment. Is, is he right about this? Do I agree with what he is saying? You make your own judgments about whether it's right and wrong. And finally, having done that, we all integrate the word into our souls, planting it deeper and seeking to rest in it. And this is not going to surprise you because obviously symbolic structures are fractal. But get this, here is our order of worship. God takes hold of us. That's the call to worship. We thank him. That's our first hymn in our confession. God breaks us up and puts us back together through the preaching of his word. Then we give our own offerings to God in prayer and praise. Finally, God judges us. That is what is going on when we eat his supper, as we see in the case of the Corinthians being judged for eating unworthily. In our case, we hope by faith God declares us worthy and is pleased to eat with us. And finally, we eat and rest in him as we are integrated into his body through the Holy Spirit working in the supper. Now, indulge me one more example so you can see that this, this pattern really is ubiquitous. Consider the order of creation. When God makes the world, he also follows the same pattern every day. He follows this pattern. He takes hold of creation. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. He restructures it. He divides. He combines. He fills. He forms. He transforms. He gives what he has made to the stars, to the birds, to the fish, to the animals, to man, depending on what it is and what day it is. He judges it each time. He saw that it was good. And finally, he enjoys and rests in it on the seventh day. But did you notice in the order of creation that there was a step missing? 
really sharp, you notice this, uh, the step that separates us from God. God takes the world. He does not need to give thanks for it. He just starts working with it. He takes hold and he restructures. He does not need to bless because he is God. Who is he going to bless? What would he be thanking? That is why sin is by definition idolatrous because sinners try to follow God's pattern rather than inserting that extra step of thanks. They refuse to give thanks and therefore make themselves out to be God. Paul tells us, because that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings and their senseless heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed beasts and creeping things. So that is the timing, the sequence of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'd like to look at the form of it. What does it look like and what elements does it contain? And we can work through the timing to see the majority of these. Uh, What is the practical outworking? How do we actually implement this timing? So firstly, I'd like to look at the overall form before we get into the individual elements. Obviously, the Lord's Supper is a kind of a meal, but it will help to understand what kind and how it differs from an ordinary meal. At the beginning of Acts, you remember that they were meeting daily to break bread, this Acts 2, 42 and 46, and this seems to be an idiom, I think very clearly, especially in the readings that we have, this is an idiom for both sharing a meal and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Breaking bread is uh, an idiom for the Lord's Supper itself, but of course it also extends further than that because it can refer to sharing a meal. So it seems the first Christians were so enthusiastic about the Lord's Supper that they were performing it whenever they shared a meal, which is where we get the idea of the agape feasts, the love feasts, which Jude speaks about, for instance. By the time we reach Acts 20, however, they've kind of settled down, and there's a more natural routine, a pattern of gathering weekly to do this on the Lord's Day. So in Acts 20, verse 7, we read, Upon the first day of the week, that is, the Lord's Day, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul discoursed with them, intending to depart on the morrow, and prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where we were gathered together. And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, borne down with deep sleep. And as Paul discoursed yet longer, being borne down by his sleep, he fell down, From the third story, and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him, said, Make ye no ado, for his life is in him. And when he was gone up and had broken the bread and eaten, and had talked with him a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the lad alive and were not a little comforted. You notice that the pattern that they are following here is that they break bread, they have a meal and the Lord's Supper, in other words. After the preaching, they gather together to eat, but first there is instruction. And in this case, the instruction continues afterward as well because Paul is about to leave and he wants to make the absolute most of the time that he has. But it seems quite obvious that the expectation in the text is that the instruction comes first. That's why everyone's waiting. That's why a guy falls asleep. He's like, I'm so tired and hungry. This follows the same liturgical pattern that we have already seen in Scripture and indeed in the early church. You preach and then you eat. 
And this practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper as a full meal, a love feast, continued until the Corinthians started to abuse it. In 1 Corinthians 11, 18 to 22, we read, For first of all, when you come together in the congregation, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be factions among you that they that are approved may be manifest among you. When therefore ye assemble yourselves together, it is not possible to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and put them to shame that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I praise you not. Let me point out in passing that Paul assumes that when they gather together, they will celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is what you do when you gather together. But more importantly for understanding the the form of the Lord's Supper, notice that he assumes that it is not for the purpose of filling our stomachs. It is not a normal meal. The church was not wrong to celebrate the Lord's Supper with a normal meal, except that now doing so is causing or really worsening the divisions that exist among them. You see, he says, it is not possible for them to eat the Lord's Supper because of the divisions among them. They're not eating together, but separately, with some going hungry and some even getting drunk on their grape juice, no doubt. This makes it impossible for them to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What they are celebrating is not the Lord's Supper. It is something else. It is a perversion of the Lord's Supper. Now, hopefully the reason for this, the reason that it's impossible that they actually be celebrating a true Lord's Supper here is clear by now. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic participation in the pattern of Christ's own body. You are what you eat. This is not just a glib cliche. It is actually a creational truth. So by each person eating one bread, their individual bodies are built up into one substance. They become one together. That is what is being represented. But this is not pagan magic. This is true magic. The bread doesn't actually cause the mystical union that it represents. The bread doesn't contain spiritual power. Rather, God is the one with the spiritual power. The bread cannot make separate people actually become one body. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit makes the members of the church one body when they present the supper to him. He remembers his covenant and he sends the Spirit, God sends the Spirit to truly unite them. But then what happens if you present the supper to him in a perverse way? What if you are acting like a body that is at war with itself? What if you are representing the the substance, the one bread, Christ's body, being cut up and abused? with some getting drunk and others not even getting any. Well, God still remembers his covenant. You're still following the right basic pattern. There's still a liturgy here. You're still participating in the pattern, but you are participating in it perversely. And so this time when he remembers his covenant, he remembers its curses. And he sends his Holy Spirit to you with those instead, which is why Paul says some of you have even died And so Paul therefore puts restrictions in place to prevent this from happening. 
These restrictions effectively turn the supper into a symbolic meal, something that is more ritualized, something that is specifically separate and distinct from the fellowship meal, and therefore more suited to the kind of worship that we ourselves perform. He says, wherefore, my brothers, when ye come together to eat, wait one for another. If any man is hungry, let him eat at home, that your coming together be not unto judgment. So we are not to mingle the Lord's Supper with a shared meal for the sake of hunger. It is not to be confused with that. We're not filling our bellies. We are representing the communion of Christ. Fellowship meals are good. It is good to satisfy our hunger together. But it's also good to keep that separate from the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal, a sacramental meal. So that is the overall form of it. Let's quickly look at each of its major elements. Firstly, Jesus took the bread and the cup. He takes hold of them. This means that the man acting in Christ's behalf in the Lord's Supper obviously needs to take hold of something. This will be myself or Jared. And this requires us to have a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. But what kind of bread? In the Old Testament... Unleavened bread was used in the offerings, but under the new covenant, leaven has taken on new significance. It is no longer a symbol of sin working its way through the whole lump. It is a symbol of the gospel working its way through the whole lump. This is a bit further afield than I want to go right now, but perhaps your symbolic intuitions are sharp enough to pick up on why this change takes place, as it really, this this inversion of, of the symbolism of leaven is really something on which the whole gospel itself rides. I believe that leavened bread, because of the symbolism, would be most appropriate. And I also think it would be ideal if someone in the church made the bread, as this means that we are bringing the work of our own hands to God, offering it to him and having him return it to us in blessing. I don't think that it is a necessity. Obviously, we, if we buy bread, it's still the work of our hands in the sense that we have had to pay our own money for it, but being able to bring our own bread into the supper would be a good thing, I think. What about people, though, who can't eat normal bread? I'm not talking about people with fad diets, but people like Emma who really just can't eat gluten. I think there are three basic options here. Firstly, we could have separate gluten-free bread for such people, but this seems to me like a very bad option. I know it's something most churches do, but the whole point of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is that we who are many are one bread. Using a single loaf or a single batch of loaves, if you've got a large church, seems symbolically important. The whole idea is that you are all eating the same stuff, not vastly different stuff. The second option is to have gluten-free bread for everyone. This strikes me as a perfectly acceptable option if it can be managed practically. Gluten-free bread is still bread, just like unleavened bread is. Non-alcoholic wine is a contradiction in terms, but gluten-free bread is not a contradiction in terms. So this would be my preference, as it shows the body working to accommodate all its members. We all eat of the same bread, and we eat whatever everyone can eat. The third option is that those who can't take gluten-free bread simply don't take bread, but take wine and as we take that instead. And I think that this is a valid option, but it's obviously less appealing 
than having a common loaf that everyone can eat. Because of the fall, there are some people who really do suffer from problems that keep them from normal things. You could apply the same principle here, I think, to uh, you know, the, the classic drunkard who can't take the wine in communion. I think that those cases are much rarer than fundamentalists would have us believe, but I'm willing to accept that such a thing could happen. And in that case, I don't think that it's appropriate to have separate grape juice for that person. That person just wouldn't take the wine. The Lord's Supper does have two elements. You can partake of one without having to partake of the other, and it is still the Lord's Supper to you. If you can't take one, it would be very unlikely that you couldn't take the other. And I suppose that a time might come when someone in our church is allergic to some ingredient in whatever bread we are using, and someone is going to end up not being able to share in that common loaf. But that time is not yet, and hopefully not ever. So my preference would be for Redwood to use gluten-free bread so that we can all partake of the same loaf if we can manage it. The second step in the sequence is the blessing. This is very simple. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Jesus always blesses before he distributes the food. What does this mean? We aren't told what he said, but we do know the kind of thing that he said because several times we are told that he gave thanks. Blessing and giving thanks are interchangeable in the gospel accounts. So we give thanks to God for the bread and for the wine. The third step is breaking, dividing, which goes along with the fourth step of giving. With bread, this is obviously pretty easy. I can tear off a piece and then pass it on to Jared, who can tear off a piece and then pass it on to the next person, and so on, until everyone's had some. And if we end up with enough people that this starts to become very slow, we could have men acting as deacons to take larger pieces to the heads of households who could then break it up for their families. That's just as the disciples did in the gospel accounts, essentially. With wine, though, it's a little trickier. Do we just have one cup, and then I drink, and then I hand it on until everyone has drunk, like down the line? Well, our modern sensibilities recoil at the idea of a common cup. Ooh, gross. This does actually seem to be how Jesus did it, and it is something which has been done in churches for centuries, but it's not a scalable method, because if Redwood grew to be 100 people or more, God willing, it would be very tedious to wait for a single cup to be handed between every single person. That could take, you know, 10 minutes or more. And I don't think the Lord's Supper is meant to be tedious. It is meant to be a celebration, a symbolic feast. And we need to accommodate the practical realities of that in order to not destroy the the fundamental idea of what it is. There's also another consideration here. Jesus is explicit to refer to his blood being poured out. Just as the bread is broken... So the wine is poured. Under the old covenant, it was poured out onto the ground. No one could drink with God unless Christ opened the way. But now it is poured into our cup. So I think that being able to see this pouring is symbolically important. And so my preference would be to have at least a couple of cups, probably one per household, makes sense, and have those cups filled from a common bottle or carafe and then distributed to the heads of households who can then give it to everyone to drink. But this, in turn, raises another important question, which is who receives the bread and the wine? 
And I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this because I don't think that there is any real disagreement here at Redwood, but I do want to briefly touch on it so that you do understand what we are doing and why. The Reformed tradition has excluded children from communion since the beginning. And I believe in doing this, they were really following the Catholics rather than Scripture. Their argument is that Paul says we must examine ourselves before eating and that we must not eat if we cannot discern the body. But this argument is actually terribly ironic because the body that he is speaking of is the church. His entire argument in 1 Corinthians 11 is about the divisions in the church. Now, our children, members of the church. The Reformed tradition rightly says yes. But then it does not discern them in the body when it serves communion. So this is deeply ironic. It is deeply sad because it is creating a division in the body, which is the very thing that Paul says to avoid doing in 1 Corinthians 11. I think that we can be certain that Christ is no less indignant at this than he was when he walked the earth and the disciples prevented covenant children coming to him. He said to them, let the little children come to me and hinder them not, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. In our readings from Matthew's gospel, I was therefore careful to include verse 21 of chapter 14, where it says, And they that did eat were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now this is not about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about this. Anyone who has been baptized into the covenant is welcome at the covenant remembrance meal. Anyone who is a member of the body is to be discerned in that body. Little children, I assure you, can, can discern that body perfectly well because they know intuitively what it means if they are excluded from the meal that joins the body together, just as they would know perfectly well what it meant if you were to exclude them from the dinner table. In the early church and up until today in the Eastern churches, children were always invited to the Lord's table and they are invited at Redwood also. If they are able to eat bread and drink wine, then they are welcome to. The next step is judging. I, I put um, breaking and giving together there, so judging comes next. That is declaring the meaning of the meal. We've already seen that this is sometimes also gets mingled into the giving. In the, in the gospel accounts, um, it, it's a little bit tricky how you want to kind of break this out. Jesus tells his disciples what the bread and the wine mean before he actually gives them out. You see, the sequence is a bit blurry at this point. The way that it is written, which is what I've taken as a way to describe the sequence, is take, bless, break, give, judge. But the way that we are told that it practically happened is that the judgment, this is my body, came before or during the giving of the bread, not actually after it. And this is natural because judgment is necessary at every step of a task. It makes sense if you're describing what happened to put the judgment near the end. But when it comes to actually doing, doing a task, judgment is necessary throughout the whole thing. It's less of a discrete action and more like a feedback loop. So it makes the most sense to describe the judgment near to the end as you are judging the whole thing, deciding whether it's good and worth integrating or bad and worth destroying. But in reality, in practice, it takes place throughout the process. And so the traditional liturgy 
reads these words of institution before the bread and the wine are distributed, and that seems to be what Christ himself actually did, so that is what we will do also. Finally, we eat and we drink, and most churches eat together, waiting until everyone has the bread before eating, with the idea being to better represent that we are one together by eating together. And this is fitting. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 11, when ye come together to eat, wait one for another. So I think that we should wait one for another when we eat the bread. Now, with regard to the wine, drinking together is obviously impossible the way the Lord's Supper was originally practiced with a shared cup passed from person to person. And it would be really impossible to do it the way that I have suggested as well. Every single person would have to have a cup in order for that to work. And I think that that is impractical, and it also leads to silliness, like tiny shot glasses, which just strikes me as kitsch and banal. We must remember that the Lord's Supper is not a toast, so each person can drink as the wine comes to him. There is just one final point, a small but important one. Do you remember how I've talked about the movement of our worship going from standing to sitting? We start on our feet, but as we move closer to God into communion with him, we sit down, even reclining in his bosom as the apostle that Jesus loved. I believe that this movement is symbolically important, and I believe that it is why we see in several of the gospel accounts this specific detail that Jesus bids the people to sit down before feeding them. This is a repeated pattern in scripture which is at odds with how the Lord's Supper is done in probably most churches today. I don't think that it is right to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the people standing as they are forced to do if they have to come forward to the front to receive it. And of course, coming forward to the front is completely impractical if you follow Christ's instructions and give the bread and the wine separately. And it's certainly not appropriate to receive communion on your knees as the Catholics would do. You don't enjoy a meal with someone standing up, but if they uh, want you to kneel down, you would have some serious questions about what was going on. So this is why everything that I have said assumes that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper sitting. We're just going to stay in our seats. Well, we have covered a lot of ground, and I know I have not answered every single possible question, but I hope I've answered the major questions that you have, and I hope you see that there are good reasons to do things the way that we are planning to do them, And there are certain things that we still need to work out. I hope I've helped you to understand not only how I think we should do the Lord's Supper, but also why, God willing, we do those things that way. And you are very welcome to discuss this. Jared and I will be just talking about it more so as we prepare for next week. Um, We would value both your feedback and your counsel. And we can discuss it further over our shared meal, which is separate at lunchtime.